I'm kind of nervous. This sermon is really personal for me this week. Um, And it all starts with a guy named Moses. It's kind of weird, right? (laughs) But seriously, personally, I can really relate with Moses, with his story, especially in today's reading, when he's clearly feeling inadequate, insufficient. Imposter syndrome is marked by a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. And it's pretty clear that this was a great struggle for Moses, especially early on in his call. See, Moses was an Israelite, but he was raised up as an Egyptian in the very household of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's own daughter, no less, which means, in many ways, he led a very privileged life. The fact that he was alive at all was really a divine miracle. But at the end of the day, Moses was not an Egyptian. And I can't help but wonder what it felt like for him to not really identify with the people who raised him or with the people he came from. To the Egyptians, he would always be different. And to the Israelites, he would seemingly never be fully one of them either. I mean, they probably wondered how this guy could possibly understand their plight, right? Living up in Pharaoh's house. And I assume these were insecurities that had to have plagued him. And when God spoke to him and told him to go to Pharaoh on behalf of the people, we can only imagine what he was thinking. How could he ever really be effective with either group if his whole life he never quite fit in with them, when neither fully accepted him? Why on earth would anyone listen to him? And yet, God called Moses. God placed a call in his life. God put him in this unique position in which he had a voice among both people groups, no matter how influential he thought that voice might be. Many of us have had experiences in our lives when we have felt similar to Moses, in which we were called to a task that we felt truly incapable of accomplishing. When I think about the reservations Moses must have had after God spoke to him, I think of the times I haven't felt sufficient in my own life, of all the times I was unsure of where or how I fit in. You can probably do the same when you think about similar instances in your own experience. But today, I would like to tell you a little bit of my story, specifically from the perspective of race, because it has been my observation that people most often change not because of logic or clever arguments or philosophical considerations, but as a result of personal experience. When we rub shoulders with people who are different from us, when we get close enough to walk around in their skin for a while, we learn things like grace and empathy, and we change. And right now, when it comes to issues of race in our society, we desperately need some change. A lot of disappointing things have been happening on the national stage, and it's caused us to pay closer attention to what's going on in our own communities. And in many ways, I'm grateful because the ugly stuff is rising up, rising up to the surface, and everyday people are beginning to realize that things are far from perfect. And it seems like, for the first time ever, we as a society are actually talking about it. That's a good thing. And this is so important and so encouraging, and as a church, we need to be intentional about keeping these kinds of conversations going in our own context. But 
we also have to understand that it won't happen without cost. It may cost us our comfort as we commit to the challenge of self-examination and awareness. It may cost us our pride as we take ownership in various ways we may have contributed to a broken and biased system as we admit to the ways in which we are privileged. And sometimes it might even cost us relationships as we boldly call others to this important work of redemption and racial reconciliation. So today I want to start by sharing my own story, not to be self-centered, but to give you a glimpse into a person of color's experience in the hopes that it might inform your own paradigm when it comes to considering these conversations. I grew up in rural North Louisiana in a small town where everybody knew everybody. So for example, if my family came to visit, they would get blatantly stared at if they went to the grocery store or the library or a hometown sporting event because people could tell if you were an outsider from a mile away and there was no shame in being nosy, believe me. In my small town, almost everyone was either white or black and this is how everyone was labeled. You would rarely see, much less interact with anyone outside of these general categories. And the racial tension was no secret. If you went to the doctor, there was a white side and a black side. If you went to the library, the same was true there. There was a white swimming pool and a black swimming pool. Uh, if a black kid came to the white pool, everyone stared, some parents took their kids home, and white kids never went to the black pool. There was a white prom and a black prom still taking place when I was a kid. And once I got to high school, there was uh, a white representative and a black representative for the homecoming court for every grade. There was the white side of town and the black side of town. There were even a couple of private schools where people who could afford it enrolled their white children. Needless to say, we all knew why the schools existed, but in case you're unsure, the mascot is a rebel and the logo a Confederate flag still to this day. I know I'm not the only one who experienced this narrative. This is really common in the rural South. In my town, the racial lines were clear, but not for me. As a person of both Mexican and Filipino descent, I didn't always know where to fit because I wasn't white and I wasn't black. But from my earliest memories, I can remember being different and I can remember sensing that this wasn't a good thing. I can remember being aware that the color of your skin mattered and being the wrong color would make your life much more difficult. In elementary school, I remember students, parents, and even teachers asking me regularly, what are you regarding my race? How do you answer this as a kid? It is my first real memory of being insecure about my skin color. My second memory involved not being able to afford things that the white kids could afford. I, I wish so badly I could take dance or gymnastics or voice lessons, but we simply couldn't manage the extra cost. I remember music being my favorite class in elementary school and how every year the music teacher would hand out letters in front of the class to select students who were chosen to take voice lessons with her over the summer. Each year I would think, this is my chance to do something I couldn't normally afford. I never was selected, but what I noticed then, as an eight-year-old and up, that only white kids ever were selected. 
Similarly, every year at Christmas, a chosen few, first through third, would be selected to sing in the Christmas choir while the fourth graders acted in the Christmas play. And every year I yearned to be selected. I never was. It wasn't until the fourth grade play when I got to audition with someone other than the music teacher that I finally got to participate. But with each of these rejections, it was ingrained in me that I was somehow wrong. Who I was, the color of my skin, was inferior. At the same time, as I was experiencing these things at school, I began making good friends who I would inevitably play with outside of school. Parents, kids talk. They tell each other what you tell them, even at a young age. And my best friend would tell me every time her mom tried to keep her from playing with me. She would tell me that her mom would ask her, why don't you play with so-and-so instead? And it didn't get past us when she would try and schedule play dates with other little girls to my exclusion. But the thing is, I lived in a white neighborhood, so these were my people. And I spent my childhood trying to live up to them. I spent my childhood trying to be white. I can remember taking photos with my friends and absolutely lamenting my dark skin when the photos would be developed. Remember when photos were developed? <laughs> I remember trying my hardest to stay out of the sun in the summer so I wouldn't get any darker. And I remember the shame I felt when my junior high boyfriend and I waited for a decision from his parents on whether or not we could date because of my race. The verdict was, it was okay, and I quote, but only because she isn't black. So I was accepted, but barely, when it came right down to it. Race was a hot button issue in our small town, so it wasn't just me. There were issues of racism happening every day, so ingrained in all our lives that it was simply considered normal. The problem with me and my family is that people genuinely didn't seem to know how to categorize us. Were we white or were we black? These were the options that existed. And you were either treated as if you were one or the other. You either lived and worked and loved in one demographic or the other. So interracial dating, for example, was a social death sentence. You didn't do it, and if you did, it was a huge scandal at the time. When my sister, who's visiting today, was growing up, blazing the trail ahead of me, people were still trying to figure out if we were white or black. And I can still remember observing the sting she felt in her own relationships by parents of people she dated. They disapproved and in one instance even ordered their son not to date her simply because of the color of her skin. By the time I got to high school, she had made life easier for me. People knew who we were by then, and for whatever reason, we'd been lumped into the white category. So in many ways, I had it easier because I was finally accepted. And this kind of explains what's happened to me my whole life. I've been lumped into a category and treated as if I were white. For the most part, these have been my people, and don't get me wrong, they have been good, good people, some of the best. They've made up my best friends, my church families over the years, my marriage and the family I married into. I mean, I have been immensely blessed when it comes to community and most of my experiences have been positive and I am so grateful when I think about it that way. But as I've grown older and more aware, I can see how these past experiences have affected me. I can see the ways in which they've made me incredibly insecure, given me a false sense of inferiority and a general sense of unbelonging. 
And I can understand better why I often overcompensate at trying to belong in the white world I inherited. I've spent my whole life not really fitting in with the black people, not really fitting in with the white people, and yet simultaneously feeling like I've somehow disgraced my heritage because I can't pronounce Spanish words well, much less speak the language. And when I moved to Texas, I learned that apparently I've been saying my own name wrong for my whole life. <laughs> and so when I read this story about Moses, I can't help but pay attention to his unique situation of being an Israelite raised by an Egyptian. And I wonder when exactly he began to discover who he really was. Was it the first time he became aware of the Israelites' oppression, killing an Egyptian in the midst of his grief-ridden discovery? Was it when he saw those two Israelites fighting and reached out as an intermediary without even thinking twice? Or maybe it was when Yahweh called to him from that burning bush in today's reading when he encountered the holy for the first time at the mountain of God. Perhaps all of these things and more played into his awakening, but either way, Moses woke up. And in this sense, I can really relate to him and I take comfort and encouragement from him as I consider his story. My racial identity has been something I've been very disconnected from in the past. In many ways, I feel like an animal who has been raised as something else. Let's say a cat raised as a dog with a pack of dogs. She thinks she's a dog until one day she sees her reflection for the first time and she realizes she's something else. Talk about an identity crisis, huh? It sounds crazy, but lately I feel like I'm seeing my reflection for the first time. The best way I can explain it is that I'm waking up to my brownness and learning to love it and own it. And to be honest, I think it all started around the time of the election, that brutal presidential election which seemed to go on forever. Maybe you remember it. I've never felt the division in our country more. I've never been a more uh, aware of people's social and political frustrations. I've never been more aware of my own. And these frustrations combined with the election and the power of social media created movements among the people all over the spectrum. People are more compelled than ever to get moving for whatever it is they stand for, to speak up, to do something if they want to see something done. This has been my narrative too, as a woman and as I've discovered as a person of color. Now, while all this was simmering within me, I read this book called The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which is a book by Sue Monk Kidd, who my friend Kendall, she gifted me this book years ago, and at the time I just wasn't ready to read it, but this year I was ready. So I read it, along with Fran, Melinda, a handful of other women, and everyone was just totally awakened by it fed up, excited. There was this understanding between us of the feminine wound, and this was and continues to be a, a powerful shared experience. But still deep down, I couldn't help but feel somewhat unruffled by it all, sort of like a resigned unsurprise. And I remember telling Kendall, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because of my experience as a person of color. And this is the first time that I can remember ever labeling myself that way. But at the same time, I knew it was true. 
and then fran posted this totally poignant description of her experience reading this same book. she spoke of her struggle as a woman constantly working to gain access to what she called the white boys club it was such a powerful read and those of us who got to see it were totally struck by it as if we had just been punched in the gut because we realized that this was also a shared experience between us all and naming it was like being set free now this was a couple of months ago but what she said resonated with me so deeply i never quit thinking about it and i still haven't but for different reasons See, I realized that her words about the white boys club were exactly how I felt about white people, the white person club. I had never been able to verbalize it before, but this was it. This is exactly how I felt subcon um, subconsciously for my whole life. This is how I've spent my energy trying to fit into this club. And then, not too long after this, Charlottesville happened. And Black Lives Matter, Colin Kaepernick, some of the openly racist administrative appointments in the White House, none of these things have been enough to get a united conversation about race started. They've been too hot button for people, too controversial, too political. But what happened in Charlottesville was blatant. White supremacists carrying torches and Nazi flags and openly acting as if Racism should be normalized and hatred would be the order of the day. This would be the thing that would finally open everyone's eyes. And for the most part, it was universally condemned. But there was still arguing and political division and the need for sides to somehow win and the fact that this was even possible, that there couldn't just be an obvious, clear condemnation of racism and white supremacy with no ifs, ands, or buts was like a last straw. And so this was that moment for me. You've seen it before in shows and movies. If you watch Game of Thrones, you saw it just a few weeks ago with the dragon. If you don't watch Game of Thrones, that sounded like a really weird statement. <laughs> but the camera hovers over someone you think has died, and it slowly zooms in onto their face until it stops at their eyes, and all of a sudden, bam, their eyes pop open. They are alive, and something is about to go down. <laughs> this was the point that I realized I was going to have to claim my brownness because it is my brownness that has made me feel so lonely and so hopeless and so unheard along with so many others when it comes to these racial conversations that we've been having in our country. It is my brownness that shapes my perspective on these issues and when I see racism I know it because I experience it. When I feel the pain of Charlottesville, it's my pain too. Something about Charlottesville woke me up completely. It made me realize that no matter how uncomfortable I may be or how uncomfortable I may make others feel, I have to talk about this. We have to talk about these things. We can't stay out of these conversations. Whether you agree with movements like Black Lives Matter, for example, whether you agree with that or not, it's, it's highlighting a call to change. That's what it's doing. And Charlottesville was a reminder of how much this change is really needed. And everything in between, our everyday lives, if we're really paying attention, are also living, breathing confirmations that something's got to give. This is why it's important that people share their stories, that people like me share my story.
because my story isn't obvious i mean sometimes when we think about racism we think about blatant instances which most of us only ever see on social media and we think well that isn't the norm most people aren't racist but my story is the norm and my story is the story of every person of color every single day who experienced racism in the most subtle ways and in my personal story, when I speak of racist people, I'm not speaking about evil people. I mean, don't get me wrong, I remember that Saturday when I was a kid and there was a KKK rally in the town square and my mom wouldn't let me go outside. I remember that. But on an everyday basis, the ways that I experienced racism were so intricate, you might have never known that it caused a wound. And the people who hurt me in these instances were good people most often not realizing the ways that they contributed. And the great majority of these people live their lives with the intention of loving, not hurting or hating. I don't know if any of you have ever seen 20 Years a Slave. It's a really hard movie to watch. The movie is so powerful, it really had an impact on me. In fact, it was so hard to watch that probably the only reason I saw the whole thing was because I went to see it in the movie theater and I don't recommend doing that alone because you'll cry a lot. But there were a lot of characters in it who were clearly terrible, violent, and evil people. But there were also some characters who were nice, who were actually kind of likable. And these people seemed good considering the fact that they were slave owners. They genuinely didn't know they were doing a bad thing. They really thought their actions were normal and therefore acceptable even under the eyes of God. And they lived with this assumption that their way was right, no questions asked. This is history. This is sometimes now. This is real stuff. And this is why it is so important that we absolutely cannot be afraid of self-examination. There must be an awareness of privilege. Right now, as all these conversations are rising to the surface at once, there must be willingness to listen and change when necessary. But none of this can take place if we're not even participating in the conversation. Recently, I caught up with an old seminary friend who's also Mexican-American. Her experience was very different from mine because she grew up with, with people almost all um, being her same ethnicity. And during our conversation, I told her about this awakening I've been having. And in affirming my experience, she opened up to me about how isolated she felt throughout seminary and how shut down she was anytime she tried to share a deeper perspective, specifically as a person of color in the classroom. And she said something to the effect of, it's as if they want their token minorities, but they don't want their pain. They want their smile and their silence. For me, this is the epitome of good, great, wonderful people unconsciously contributing to a broken system. With the presence of social media, a lot of people of color are finally getting the chance to share their stories, their everyday realities. And it's encouraging to see that so many white people are willing to listen. But understand that the wound is deep. And these stories aren't pretty. Instead, they sound a lot like pain, a lot like grief and a lot like anger they are rising up hard and fast uncontrollably and thanks be to god unapologetically and it can be hard to hear some of it without being offended but the challenge is to listen to empathize 
and hardest of all, to ask yourself how you might have unintentionally contributed to the wound instead of denying that the wound exists. And sometimes this means allowing the wounded to be angry without getting angry back. It's a lot to ask, I know. And to be honest, I think it's the kind of thing that literally can't be done without divine help. But when I think about our reading today from Exodus, I think about how God was so hurt by the oppression of the Israelites. God said, I see their misery. I hear their cry. I know their sufferings. God listened. God empathized. And God's solution was to get them out. This treatment, this oppression was not okay. And God's plan was to use Moses, who happened to be a person who was raised as an Egyptian to do it, meaning it took some privilege to make it happen. Do you hear what I'm saying? Moses used his privilege, his proximity to the powers that be as a person of privilege to rise up on behalf of the other. And when I think about this powerful act of defiance, and then I think of the corresponding Romans text from today, it almost seems like these two readings could be in conflict with one another because the Romans text says things like, be patient in suffering. Live in harmony with one another, and if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When I first read this passage in preparation for today, my first reaction was frustration because I think sometimes people use verses exactly like these to validate complacency. Or in today's instance, even to disregard societal wounds, to make women and people of color feel like they are not allowed to be angry or like they're wrong if they act out loudly against injustice. Now, I am the first to admit that this chapter is pretty. It's actually one of my favorite chapters in high school. I used to like paint it on my face when I was a cheerleader. But it can also be the perfect prey for proof texting. But reading it side by side with our Exodus text, which actually both are from today's lectionary, sheds a new light to the passage. Because the Exodus reading is about responding to societal wounds. It is about anger toward oppression. It is about resisting injustice. And it is clear from the divine presence in the story that God is not only supportive and God is not only a participant, but God is the very one spearheading the defiance against those evil societal norms institutionalized by Pharaoh. And it makes me so excited that when I jump back to the Romans reading, I see it differently. This time, when I see statements like, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, I realize that it is my responsibility as a person of God, it is our responsibility to be creators of peace in this world. And last time I checked, living peaceably with all did not include any one group having privilege over another, and it certainly doesn't mean little kids are left out of play dates because of their skin color, or teenagers are shamed for interracial dating, or black boys and men are feared to the extent that their lives don't seem to be valued. Subtle and blatant forms of racism, all forms of racism existing is the antithesis of us living at peace with one another, and the call is to live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you, which means it's each of our personal responsibilities to work toward peace endlessly. Yeah. This Roman reading 
ends with a statement, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, sometimes good is disruptive. But if we learn anything from Moses and his experience with God in the book of Exodus, it is that God is a disruptive God. And God is anti-oppression and against any form of injustice always, every single time. And when we answer the call to be people of God, we answer the same call. And sometimes it starts with something as simple as participating in a social conversation that affects all of us, even when it's hard, even when it's uncomfortable. Now, I know that I've referenced social media some, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying you have to be loud and arrogant on Facebook in order to take part in this important work. (laughs) Now, while I do think there can be some value in speaking out on behalf of a marginalized group in that way, I'm not saying this is the only way or even the best way to play a part in the work of peace and healing. One way that we as a church can participate in this conversation is by being more open to becoming diverse ourselves. Kyle talked about it like we did not even plan this and I feel like you're I'm about to say the same thing you said welcome but what if we intentionally sought out diversity as a church? I truly believe that this is a call God has for our church community in the days to come. You know, we've got some big and exciting change going on in worship, specifically with Fran coming on as the interim worship pastor, and some of the things we will be doing will be a lot different than what we're used to. I think the changes will benefit us in personal ways as we are invited in deeper ways to experience God and and, and new and exciting outlets, but I also think that some of these changes might help us in becoming a church that speaks to all types of people that welcomes and ushers in a new group of faces who desperately need a place of belonging at a church like ours. This is my prayer for our church's future, and I hope it will be yours too. As much as I love being your token minority, we got to get more brown people, (laughs) black people, other people in here, guys. (laughs) So as we enter into a time of reflection, I want to provide you with some specific guidance for meditation. I want you to think about times in your life when you might have seen or even contributed to racism or unfairness. How can you be a bringer of good to these kinds of situations in the future? I also want to point out that Kyle and I will be standing in the back today if you are in need of prayer. We are there to pray with you and for you. And now, may all our prayers be the same prayer Samuel voiced, which is, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Amen.